Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with National Lead for Strength and Conditioning at the English Cricket Board, Pete Atkinson. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Vald Performance, the team behind the Nordboard hamstring testing system. So the Nordboard is the fastest and easiest and most accurate way to measure hamstring strength in under 90 seconds. So the Nordboard gives the right information so you can make the right decisions for your players at the right time. So it's already in use by over half the Premier League uh, and dozens of other elite teams around the world. Uh, so the Nordboard testing system is the is on its way to becoming the gold standard for measuring and monitoring hamstring strength. So if you are interested in getting to know anything more about the Nordboard, you can visit Vald Performance, that's V-A-L-D performance.com to find out more. Thanks for tuning in to episode 85 of the Pace Performance Podcast. So just before we get going, it's uh, it's probably been quite humbling. Last few days I've been doing a few podcasts to realise that I'm actually at number 85. So just before we go any further, just want to say a massive thank you for for everyone's support uh, in getting this going and it's kind of continued success. Uh, I mean, still keep pulling in some decent guests, so people uh, people must kind of value it and uh, and guests as well. So so thank you very much. So today we've got Pete Atkinson, who is the national lead for SNC at the ECB. So we've had. Um, a couple of cricket guys on in the past, obviously Chris Toombs in number 83 um, and a couple of other guys who've been involved in cricket. But the great thing about Pete is that he's been involved with with rugby, Leicester Tigers, uh, with the English Institute of Sport uh, and now the ECB. So he's got a really wide, very background of uh, experience and knowledge. So it was great to tap into Pete um, and get his view on a number of things including the CPD, which uh, the ECB offer and really proud of. Uh, his philosophy, over the last 19 or 20 years, he's been involved in industry. Um, transfer and coordination uh, in cricket, uh, specifically, and the importance of what he calls human being skills. So a really interesting chat with Pete. But just before we go any further, I just want to introduce Kevin from Coach Me Plus, who's going to give a part one of a two-part series on questionnaires. So it's a really great, uh, interesting little segment with Kevin, um, and after it we'll get into the chat with Pete Atkinson. Well, we're going to talk about uh, wellness questionnaires now, and how they can be a very easy tool to... Uh, basically apply sports science principles to your program, um, both cost-effectively and in a way that makes sense. The one thing that we find with wellness questionnaires is we get a lot of objections as to whether or not they're valid. Um, the research that we point to is McLean, and uh, basically he correlated, uh, his group correlated um, wellness questionnaires with uh, objective indicators like counter-movement jumps and whether or not the actual fatigue values that they were getting back in the wellness questionnaires fit with the objective measures of the counter-movement jump. Um, there are a lot of other ways of capturing 
questionnaire information, you see Brunel, Palms, Brums, T TQR, uh, Rescue, Dalda. A lot of these are a lot more robust and large, and I think uh, might be good in a quarterly or a, a larger setting. But when you're trying to get into a daily routine and actually look for changes in an ongoing basis, you want to have something that's small, light, and can actually be um, answered with uh, a few questions. So again, we point back to the McLean, which is uh, based on the foundational research from Hooper and McKinnon. Um, and basically you end up with five questions. And these five questions have a scale of one to five with one being the lowest, five being the best. Um, you know, fatigue for instance, one is low, five is uh, not fatigued at all. And the questions that we ask uh, include fatigue levels, sleep quality, general muscle soreness, stress, and mood level. And in best practice, like, you know, in theory, it, it looks good, but in actual practice, this works well. Um, teams that actually do this and pull this off are getting really good value out of it. So how do we do this? Well, we can do it with paper. We can do it with Google. Um, you can do it in Excel. There are a handful of small app companies that have them. Um, some of the larger um, athlete management platforms have them as well. But really the key that you want to do is you want to get the athlete understanding why we're answering these questions and, and uh, provide the immediate intervention if something's going wrong. So you take those scores as they're being answered and actually um, act on them. So if an athlete's fatigued, if an athlete has muscle soreness or whatever that might be, um, you immediately provide an intervention for them so that they understand that if they're giving you information and they're trusting you with that information that you're doing something in return for them. Um, we're going to do a part two on this and actually get into how we can score these values. I think the biggest mistake that we're seeing right now is a lot of organizations take the information and they simply score the raw value one through five with a max score of 25. So 25 must be best. Well, that's not always the case and we'll get into that in the next part. To get your weekly dose of applied sports science updates, go to coachmeplus.com and subscribe to our weekly newsletter. That's coachmeplus.com. So today, uh, really pleased to get Pete Atkinson on the phone, who is the National Lead for Strength and Conditioning at the ECB. So welcome to the podcast, Pete. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. So do you want to um, just give us a little bit of information on your, on your background in case anyone's not aware of you and just maybe a little bit about uh, what you've done and, and what you're currently doing? Okay, yeah, no worries. Um, well, I'm in and around about the 20th year of, of being in this game. So I think, uh, as a couple of other people have sort of mentioned, I was listening to Stuart's podcast the other day, uh, uh, got into it when it didn't really exist. Um, around that time, sort of 95, 96, um, probably spent two or three years just being a bit of an S&C badger and just taking any opportunity that came my way. I was also playing some fairly mediocre semi-pro rugby at the time. Um, and then... In 98, I was lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time and be offered a job at Leicester Tigers. Um, back then, they had quite a handy team. So I um, managed to find myself in a situation where um, I was working with a team who won four consecutive uh, titles and two back-to-back Euro -back European Cups in 2001 2002. So that was a pretty special period. Um, so the second stage of my career, in fact, in, effect, uh, in professional rugby, which, which lasted six, seven years, um, 2005, transitioned out of rugby and got a job uh, at the EIS at Bisham Abbey. Um, I think I was offered the job 
two weeks before London won the games. Um, okay. And I left two weeks after the 2012 games there. So a nice little bit of symmetry around that period and a period of sort of huge growth in, in that sector um, across all the, all the disciplines and, you know, a lot more funding coming into, into sports. And then in 2012, um, landed what is, you know, sort of my dream job at the minute, um, working in cricket. I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Yorkshire lad. I grew up playing rugby and cricket. You know, they're my two sort of uh, passions um, from a sporting perspective. And to be able to sort of lead a program nationally um, in, you know, sort of my other sporting love is, is you know, it helps you jump out of bed uh, with enthusiasm each morning. So I've been with cricket now for, for about four years. Mm-hmm. So just looking, you mentioned the um, the success of Leicester when you first went in there. Looking back, what was so special about that team at the time? Yeah, um, People pay lip service to um, culture and throw the culture word around quite a lot, but it was a, a properly unique culture. If there, if there could be degradations of, of uniqueness, they would be very, very unique. <laughs> um, no, the, the, there was a, I learned a lot there about, um, about sport, uh, about brutality, about what it takes to win, uh, about um, just a mindset. And, you know, that, that, that Tigers group, looking back there, I mean, there's too many names to, to reel off, but it was the team that was coached by Dean Richards and captained by Martin Johnson. And, you know, a cast oh. of thousands of internationals there. And, um, you know, they were a, a really special group of lads. And, um, you know, to work al- alongside them, I'm actually looking back on things from an S&C perspective, the, the game's changed so much now. We're so much more sophisticated, or at least we, you know, we think we are. There's so much more uh, understanding of, of how you can impact on performance than there was then. You know, you'd probably look back with a degree of embarrassment at some of the things <laughs> we programmed at the time, but at the time it was probably a, a little bit cutting edge. Yeah. Um, but you know, I was fortunate to, the, the lads there had a massive work ethic. You know, the, the, the culture drove the culture there in terms of a work ethic that, to be a Leicester player, you, you gave your heart and soul on a week-by-week week basis. Uh, I think anecdotally one of the things that people sort of roll their eyes and think uh, when I tell this story was the reaction if we ever lost a game. So we didn't lose many. And you, Wednesday morning was always the big uh, defence session. You know, other teams didn't really do that much um, body-on-body contact during the week. But Leicester, uh, they'd be smashing each other every Wednesday morning, week in, week out. And you could literally set your watch by the fact that there would be a fight amongst the players on Wednesday morning. <laughs> we lost the previous Saturday, yeah. uh, and it was almost as if it was like the you know let's get the let's get things out of our system. Um, there were a few miscreants there who were often the uh, the catalysts to it, uh, but it, it <laughs> could have been any of them. And then the lads would just get themselves, dust themselves off, walk off the training pitch. Right, we're all right, and then they generally turn around and, and be whoever it was the following Saturday. Yeah. Um, there was a, you know, there generally was a, they were a unique bunch. So who, who drove that, Pete? Was that, was that very much player-led? Not, yeah, I think not so. the, Obviously the fighting yeah. was, but um, the rest, the rest <laughs> of it. Yeah, I think that there was just a, there was a, a critical mass of very honest, very hardworking lads there who set high standards of each other. And, you know, it was, it was, it was obvious when, 
the, uh, the large group of boys went away to England, that there were then other guys who would then step in and do an equally good job. But when the boys came back from England, they'd just pull on their Tiger shirt and they'd play at exactly the same level and with exactly the same intensity that they'd played the week before in an England shirt. There was just no difference to them. Um, whereas I think at, at other clubs at the time, that you know some of the players might sort of pick and choose a little bit more. Uh, you couldn't get away with that at Tigers. And it was just a... Yeah, you know, a special bunch of, of people and special time. And you know, looking back on that, on the record that they set at that stage, it um, it was it was pretty impressive. Just moving into your uh, EAS days, what 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 sports were you involved with, or were you kind of overseeing uh, multiple sports? <clears throat> yeah, um, I think I probably connected either directly or indirectly with somewhere between fifteen and twenty in the time right, okay. I was there. Well, um, so Bisham is the home of GB rowing, GB hockey, GB spring kayak, uh, synchronized swimming when there was a program running. Um, what else? Wheelchair basketball. Uh, we had a track and field group uh, of Olympians post Athens that included, you know, sort of uh, Marlon Devonish and, um, and, and others there. Um, and then because of my role, when I was leading this Southern team, I would get out to Lee Valley, to Milton Keynes, down to Southampton and, and connect with other sports as well. So, uh, so I mean, that's one of the, the real beauties of, of my career, if you like. If you think about it, I've, I've worked in, in rugby, Olympic sports, cricket, and it's, you know, it's, it's a bit of a dream existence, really, because I've got to have had a lot, a lot of fun along the way, but, but to have... But to have connected with so many different programs uh, and, and seeing that the challenges that exist within them um, firsthand or indirectly through line managing other practitioners has been a real uh, eye-opener for me. So how's your, how's your philosophy um, kind of developed across that 19, 20 years and kind of what's, what's been the constants uh, maybe, and maybe what's changed over that, over that time and across them different institutions and professional sports <laughs> funny you say that i mean it, one of the things i was reflecting on uh, the other day is that almost the more i experience the less i'm certain of um i think you, when you come in uh, as a young practitioner you have some beliefs about which you you, you have a degree of certainty and uh, I, th I think the more the more i go along the more i kind of uh, question things um Philosophically, in terms of asking philosophy, I think uh, Einstein put it quite nicely when he said everything should be made as simple as possible, but not simpler. And I think that the way the capacity of my particular brain works, I have to keep things reasonably simple. I have a have a simple enough framework, you know, some some pillars that I then build things things off. Um, I think I think the first of those is to is to make sure that you keep performance as the clear focus. So the concept of what it takes to win, you know, actually identify what it is that you're trying to achieve with the athlete or the athlete group that you're working with and how that's going to impact on performance. Performance is everything. It's not about making you look good as an SSC coach. If, if the right thing to do for performance is to do nothing, then you should do nothing. <laughs> so performance is the, is the goal. And so that's, that is at the, that's the number one. Uh, I think following on from that, philosophically then have a plan you know if, you, if you've identified what it is that's going to help you win and and make a difference in performance then have a plan to get there i mean following the plan is is, is slightly different but at least have a plan you know the plan is always going to change you know, the, the age-old thing of 
every plan, uh, you know, becomes relevant first contact with the enemy and all that sort of stuff. But, but I think it's important to have one. Um, philosophically, in terms of another pillar for me, I think I, I genuinely believe in the uniqueness of each in, each individual person. And I think that that's actually quite important when it, it comes to the decisions you make when around what you um, what you prescribe. So, in a nutshell, individualization is very important to me. And so, I, I would be um, looking at all sorts of different inputs and bits of information about the person. About you know, so from the hard factual perspective of what are their testing results, all the way through to what are their 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 preferences and and, um, and and how they like to go about uh, their training and what they believe works. You know, a whole sort of series of different things that you that you you take on board in order to make decisions, make effective decisions about uh, what kind of prescription to put in place. A um, couple of other things on on, on sort of uh, my particular philosophy. A couple of areas where you can use a bit of analogy. One would be. And I'm probably looking now in, in relation more to um, the development of movement or strong um, musculoskeletal capabilities than necessary think something like metabolic training. But I think the, the analogy of, of the car and the chassis versus the engine. And so what are you trying to do in the balance of your, your prescription? Are you trying to build a more powerful engine or are you trying to make sure that that the, the wheels don't fall off, that the chassis doesn't break. And so that, that within that, you get the, the right mix and blend of, of, of prescription there. Some people need more of one, some people need more of another. And following that up, you know, is uh, another analogy would be about, about the recipe, um, you know, the unique recipe for each individual. And, you know, being a, a northern lad, um, this isn't going to be some quinoa-based this is this is meat and potatoes. So you know, again, keeping things simple. I like to keep things simple on the basis of you know what's the what's the meat um, on my plate. What you know, the, the potatoes, the veg, and the sauce, and what's the blend of those, and what what am I going to do that's different for this particular individual? So the meat might be the the strength training, the weight room, the, the development of, of force and, and all its related qualities. The, the potatoes might be. Um, you know the conditioning, the the robustness uh, training that you're going to put in place there to, to uh, and that's that's uh, uh, my, my chassis example versus the engine. The veg might be the the stiffness qualities, the reactivity, the plyometric capabilities of that athlete, and the source might be the the, the, the coordination of that athlete and how you um, how you develop the transfer qualities, which actually link those un basic physical qualities to, to the performance itself. Um, so I mean, there, there are a few things that, that um, underpin my particular philosophy. I hope that I've, that's not too, uh, too lengthy a ramble. No, not at all. Um, so you mentioned um, the transfer there um, and coordination. Do you just want to kind of tell us a little bit about maybe some firstly explain what you mean by the them two terms and and kind of how you've um how you've looked to incorporate them into your into your program yeah and um, you know this i think sort of going back to the um notion there in terms of the more ex experience the less i'm certain of that i, I think 
Um, I think we've all been in situations where you take either a young athlete or a, an athlete whose who's, who's physical court is not that well developed and you throw something at them and they get better. Uh, I think, and to a certain degree, uh, that we, we can all do that pretty well. I think where I've, I've found myself scratching my head is, is the times where you think you're making a difference with an athlete or an athlete group, but you're not really seeing any change in performance. And, and that sort of bothered me. And, you know, so you crack on, you, you do the job to the best of your ability, but you can't quite work out why things aren't really sort of sticking when it comes to performance. Um, and I was fortunate in my EIS days to be um, a recipient of a lot of developmental opportunities. And, and, and a couple that came along in around the sort of 2010, 2011 period were some inter interesting opportunities to look into motor learning skill acquisition. So we had Professor Scholhorn come over from Germany, who's written a lot about differential learning. And we also had Franz Bosch come over a couple of times and, and, um, and talk to us and challenge us around um, skill acquisition, motor learning, and, and how our job as S&C coaches is more than just simply getting someone, someone strong. And I think like a, a number of people, my first response to hearing what they said was a bit kind of, whoa, what's happened there? Um, and, you know, I think it's only when you are exposed to this two or three times that, well, certainly in my, in, in my head, that the, the penny starts to drop a little bit and you start to see some exciting opportunities. Um, so from the point of view of transfer and, and coordination, I think it's, it's identifying the, the movement qualities which actually bridge the gap between the fundamental training that we do and the, the dynamic, ever-changing setting of the, that is the performance environment. And so you, you obviously mentioned coordination there, obviously something that's, something that's uh, obviously key in cricket. Um, do you just want to talk to us about maybe a couple of examples in how you um, incorporate that into your, into your programme? Yeah. Um, I think the first thing to say there is, is actually from a coaching perspective, it's, it's really liberating. Um, because when you, when you take on board that, to a certain degree, the, the amount of learning in a session is, is probably inversely proportional to the practice result. It's actually quite profound because it changes the, it's a game changer there mm -hmm. because straight away you're not looking for perfect movement all the time. Um, with the lads that I get the chance to do this kind of work with, we, we, we talk about a sort of broad sweet spot of between four and eight out of 10 on the challengeometer um, where if it's less than four, it's probably too easy. And if it's getting up to eight or above, then it's probably too difficult for them to actually problem solve and, and, and self-organize a little bit. So, I mean, I'm sure most people out there will have read something, some of the, the interesting things that are out there in terms of skill acquisition a little bit and, and know that you can, you can vary the, the constraints of an exercise or a movement based on changing the task, changing the environment or changing the, the, the person. Um, so, you know, changing the task could be anything in terms of what you ask them to do. Changing the, the person, you could um, get them to do 20 single leg squats on one leg and fatigue one leg and then ask them to do something. Um, changing the environment could be changing surfaces or, or something else there. But there's lots of different ways in which you can manipulate the task. Um, 
and so it, it becomes quite fun because you can just start messing around with stuff <laughs> and you know i think so if, to give you an actual practical tangible example uh, is you know with I, I work my passion in cricket is, is working with fast bowlers and so one particular exercise that we we use quite a lot would be a, a step up um so the because i think the fundamental characteristics of the movement where you need to strike the box from from above um and then you need to have the the swing leg the free leg come up into a um a, a nice high position into a, a hip lock position you know those are the two sort of constants that you're looking to try and reproduce but the ways in which you can then challenge that by having lopsided bars bars uh, a barbell with things dangling from it or you know all sorts of different things make it quite fun um, and, and that, uh, that makes it, you know, a, a, a different kind of coaching um, interaction that you're having with, with, with the lads that you're working with. <laughs> so when it, obviously one individualization was one of your, one of your pillars, how's, how's your ability or your ability and kind of resources available? How has them two things changed over the 20 years and your ability to individualize your training? Whoa. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so we introduced uh, technology and things like that? Uh, yeah. Um, don't, don't for one second think that I'm uh, denigrating technology in any yeah. way, shape, yeah. or form. Uh, I'm not, but I don't think that would necessarily be the, the strongest driver for me. Uh, I don't, you know, if, if you come in the gym or wherever I'm, I'm working, other than, other than a high-speed camera, I'm not using an awful lot of technologies a lot of the time. Um, I, th I think it's more just going been an experiential journey of identifying what has been effective and what's not in terms of program program prescription. Um, I'll answer your question there, Roman. I may, may not have done. No, no, that's fine. No, absolutely, mate. That's uh, yeah. I mean, it's kind of a one that obviously technology comes up comes up quite a bit and it's just interesting to know how that has kind of impacted people um like yourselves who maybe in the Leicester Tigers days you know that it was it was a lot on the focus on the coaching eye and then obviously yeah, things like I don't know velocity based training and sexy stuff like that yeah um kind of get a lot of press so it's yeah. just interesting to see how someone who's been on kind of both sides of that I don't know, that tipping point of how much that kind of thing influences you. Um, basically, what I'm saying is you, you're not more likely to get sucked in by this kind of thing, um, whereas maybe someone younger may see it as a bit of a, a sexy, a sexy add-in. Um, so it's just, it's just interesting to see that, you know, maybe that hasn't influenced you as much as maybe yeah, yeah. some I, of the younger I think, practitioners. I think if I'm guilty of falling either side on the balance of that equation, it's probably uh, not doing enough effective use of, of, of technology rather than too much yeah um i mean i've, I've tried them used them all we looking back i mean i've heard other other guests of yours on on podcast say the same thing that mm. you can remember the tendo back in 1843 <laughs> and the, whenever it was yeah and you know there's, there's a time and a place for uh, for having some some objective data and so i wouldn't steer away from from doing things, but it, I, I don't go in the gym and do velocity-based training with a with a gym aware or whatever. Yeah. I think yeah. I, I'm, I'm more inclined to to use 
um, my coach and I and, and, and the, you know, the stronger aspects of, of whatever personality I've got in order to try and facilitate the, the outcome. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think ultimately, ultimately the, the training response and the adaptation you get, one of the key drivers for that will be the intent with which someone trains. Uh, now, if if a, if a gym aware or, or helps to facilitate that, then great, use it. But I'll try and facilitate that outcome myself most of the time. So I'm probably guilty of not using technologies enough, in, if, if, if the truth be told. Mm-hmm. No, good. So that brings me on quite nicely to something that it comes up. It comes up a lot, and it's it's something that I've. Um, it kind of interests me just because I know I, I think I know the the value of it, and that's the um, kind of human being skills, as you as you uh, as you put it quite nicely. Um, do you just want to talk to us a little bit about maybe how that's changed and your your appreciation for for the human being skills um, and how they've developed a, across your your career? Yeah, um, I mean it, it, it genuinely is important, and you know. I think if I could go, could go back and correct um, mistakes I'd made in the past, then most of them, the vast majority of them would be interactions which where I've, I've let myself down by um, by not having either the self awareness or, or or the wisdom or you know or some of those qualities. It's not necessarily programming errors that that would look to go back and change. It's 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 interactions with other human beings, and I think it it starts with developing your own self-awareness and that that is a without sounding trite that is a journey that you you, you definitely need to go on you probably never end uh, but hopefully you, you do sort of learn along the way i think you need to know how how you impact on other people i think you need to be able to recognize what what happens when you're at your worst um and identify the warning signs there i think you need to know what your strengths are when when you're at your best and be able to um, find a way of, of being at your best as often as possible. Even you know, for me, just a, a simple thing is: I know I'm I'm grumpy and useless if I'm tired. You know, it's as simple as that. Is I'm not I'm the best if I'm if I'm tired if I'm and uh, if I've not had enough sleep or if I've been overworking. So you, you've got to be able to mitigate against those things. I, I think um, I think one of the key things which we should all learn at SNC school is. Is, is how to influence effectively and, and how to have different skills that sit in that influencing uh, sphere and know when to push and when to pull, and, you know, when to be assertive, when to be persuasive, when to build trust and or when to just use active listening or reflection or summarise what the other person has said. You know, there's, there's a whole... whole series of different skills that help you have better outcomes with other people if you open yourself up to them and practice them and get better at them and and be prepared to to use them and i think you need to know how much of each you need to know how how much push to use and how much pull and you know what the downside is is of too much push and not enough and and too much pull and you know it's never ending you're never going to get it right all the time but um I think you can you can definitely go on that journey of uh, competence that starts with incompetence, and you know, and see how far you can get. Mm-hmm. Well, that was that was actually my next uh, next point was where do you, where does that journey start? 
but obviously you've said it with with actually going through the incompetence stage and and kind of flagging it up in your own mind, I suppose. Yeah, and and again, I think it's easy to um, slip into jargon, but uh, yeah. I think um, the I think the the most important thing is a growth mindset. I think you, as soon as you you accept that you're not perfect and that you can improve. Um, whether it's a, a technical aspect of your of your coaching or a non non technical aspect, then then that's the first step. Um, and and so you know trying to identify what the gap might be between where you are and where where you want to be, and you know off you go. And you know the the, the rate of learning is it, it, to some some degree you're going to be in control of that in terms of how much attention you pay to an area, but other aspects other areas of there will be dependent on on your environment and the opportunities you get given. So. Um, you know, I think it's just important that uh, that that we really um, commit to looking to try and have really effective in- interactions with with the people that we work with, the the coaches that we work with, the players that we that we train. Um, and it's you know, it's not just a you know, the days have gone now. We're, we're long be ha- uh, gone from it being a dictatorial case of this is my program, you're going to get on with it. It just doesn't work like that anymore. So, has there been any any resources that have kind of helped with this 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 journey that you've gone on with regards to your kind of human human being skills, or has it been kind of a, a very very personal thing? Uh, no, I think I, I think I have been helped uh, by by organisations in the past. Um, uh, we, we were really lucky in my AIS days that because I was in in doing a lot of line management, we were exposed to a, uh, a lot of training around, I just think, 2009, 10, 11. Um, and there was, there was a number of different courses that went on. Um, there was one particular course that was run by a company called Management Futures, which was actually on coaching um, in relation to, you know, the sort of executive coaching world. Um, and there's a lady uh, uh, called Jenny Rogers there who's written a book on coaching, which well worth reading there's so much just life knowledge in there that's that's, that's well worth a read uh, and i think the the time i spent on that was a five-day course at you know two different events a three-dayer and a two-dayer but that was probably the most profound bit of personal development that um that i've been exposed to and has really helped sort of shape uh at least a better understanding of for me of of my own limitations in, in this area and and you know it's kind of sparked a um, a, a desire to to improve and, and, and get better. So yeah, a number of different um, opportunities have come my way, and then I think you, you just, it's just part and parcel of the mix of different things that you're always looking to try and improve. So if you stumble on something interesting, whether it's on on the internet or whatever, then you, you have a read and uh, or read a book on mindfulness or whatever it may be every now and then, and uh, and, and hopefully just keep keep putting. Um, some knowledge in. Mm. So that brings me a seamless link onto the ECB's CPD. Um, do you just want to talk to us a little bit about um, your kind of links with upskilling the um, the county staff and the kind of uniqueness of that situation? Yeah, um, I mean, it's one that I feel a fair bit of passion about. Passion about. Um, if I look back on the comparative environment that I worked in, in previously in the EIS, uh, when I started there in 2005, there were there were three coaches working at Bishop. By the time I left, I think it was up to about 13 plus interns. 
and and so that just became a, a hot house of of sharing and and uh, and development and we you know we did CPD at the IS don't make no bones about it but the best CPD that went on there was every lunchtime the lads just sitting down and just talking you know the or, and sorry to say lads there was um, um, lads and ladies just t- talking sharing different things working with each other in the gym uh, and and just it just accelerated their growth massively and if you look at the group of of coaches who were there then some really really highly talented people you know Alex Wolf Dave Hamilton Ben Rosenblatt Andy Hudson uh, Katie James Dan Howells you know the the list got Stuart Yule the list the list goes on huh. you know it's kind of a um, in some respects a who's who of, of that generation of talented SNC coaches who are around at the minute um, now the first thing that struck me when I started working in cricket was that the vast majority of the, of the county S&C coaches in cricket were a one-man band. And their opportunity to get development and get this sort of development by osmosis, by the development by, by confirmation, um, development by looking over the other side of the gym and seeing what somebody else is doing and then asking them about it afterwards is really, really limited. So, you know, I sort of set about to try and give, give them, A, some outlets to try and move on as, as practitioners and B, to try and connect them as, as a group themselves and, and to effectively um, develop a network be, be, between them. Now, there are, there's 18 counties, we've got 18 S&C coaches plus some others at some counties, you know, some have got two and they're, to a man, they're a cracking bunch of lads um, and they, they're willing to share they get stuck in um, at any opportunity that they're open and and there a lot there's a lot of really really talented lads out there work, working in in the county game but um, you know we've managed to put on two or three events a year plus a plus a conference uh, some of the some of the people I've already spoke about so Wolfie Ben Rosenblatt Chris McLeod uh, Ben Ashcroft who's at Arsenal Franz Stuart Yule Duncan French uh, I've pulled them in to do CPD events, um, it's, you know, virtually all gone down really, really well, you know, so I've tried to sort of tailor each of the events to the, to the sort of special skills of, of those individuals. Um, at times we've had presentations from the county lads themselves or, or I've done presentations and, you know, it's been a nice environment to be part of. Um, you know, we're um, hopefully trying to get those guys to move on because it, it, it helps everybody in the game. Um, if, if they're doing a better job at their particular county, they're more likely to produce a, a, a talented athlete who's hopefully more likely to then go on and represent the country. And, you know, that's, that's a win-win for everybody concerned. Mm-hmm. How, much, how much influence do you have as, as the ECB as what goes on um, with the S&C coaches in the, in the counties? Uh, you maybe want to... Um, Flip that question to them at some stage. Yeah, okay. You know, obviously, I know you've had a few of the guys on a little yeah, bit, but, yeah. um, and we some. Um, you know, the, the, there is some sort of direct directive in as much as uh, there's a an annual audit process that is to a certain degree linked to a funding stream, but that's more about just the the fundamentals. Are the fundamentals in place? Of is there a coach? Is there a gym? Is there um, are are you following essentially good practice but what but it, i actually prefer the way the interaction 
works here is that I don't directly line manage any of these lads. They're not they're not accountable to me and they're not responsible, but I can I can help to try and support them. So that straight away creates a um a situation where hopefully I'm not I, I'm not too much of a threat if I descend on their their county. Um and it's not like, you know, that they've come to be assessed. You know, hopefully in the vast majority of them see it as as a as a as a positive thing where we just get a chance to chew the fat, I'd work on whatever the, the problems or constraints are that they're experiencing that particular time and, and, and hopefully bounce some ideas off of somebody who might have something useful to, um, to, to talk to them about. Um, I, you know, I don't, within, within my role, because it's only a part of my role, I don't get a chance to do as much of that as, as, I, would, as I would like to, but it's, it's one of the enjoyable aspects of being able to try and help the guys develop and, and, and move on and just, you know, being a sort of informal mentor. Mm-hmm. So does that run, does that kind of situation with regards, like you say, a mentor, does that situation run down the, the youth levels as well? That they've kind of got, are you the, you the same guy for them, for the younger, for the coaches of the younger age groups in the counties? Or do they have a similar guy to you that they can kind of have, like be a mentor? Well, I mean, the first Last year, for the first time, we actually put on a CPD event for the assistant SNC coaches at the at the academies. Now, um, strategically, things might change in in that area, but that was led by Rob Arman, who's our Pathways SNC coach, who's an outstanding um, coach in his own right. And, and so that was a step in that, that in the right direction to try and try and help help them. But when we actually look at where our impact is going to be uh, most effective. The, the limiting factor isn't necessarily what the assistant S&C coaches know and don't know. It's more what access are they getting to players and, and how does the infrastructure work at their particular county. So, so it might be more effective, actually, that that, that interaction um, for Rob takes place with the county academy directors actually trying to get, um, you know, sort of some basic regular training in place on, on a regular basis rather than necessarily spending our time trying to to develop a, a group of coaches who um, who often turn over quite quickly. Mm-hmm. That's I'm, I'm getting into the, the nuances now and the um, of our particular sport. But it, you know, I think it was a, just a feature that we were we're actually trying to reach out to not just the, um, the sort of head of S and C at each county mm-hmm. for the first time uh, last year. Okay, nice. So I just want to um, I just want to round up there. I don't want to keep you for too long uh, on a Sunday night. But do you want to just um, let us know if you well. Are you a, a guy that's um, active on social media, just so people can keep up to date with what you've got going on? I, I am on social media, but I, I wouldn't uh, describe myself as, a, as an S and C badger. On okay. Social media. <laughs> um, so you, you've You're got there Tomb, if anyone needs you. He's the uh, he's uh, Tomb, Chris Toombs is, is the Twitter badger. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I follow a number of people that. Uh, I, I find it interesting, and whenever I've got um, nothing better to do or whatever, then I'll flick through Twitter and, and read something from time to time. But I wouldn't, um, I, I don't necessarily put a lot of SNC content out there. So, so your listeners are probably going to be a bit disappointed if they if they all click follow for me and then um, and then there's not a lot happening on their timeline. Yeah. But if if they want to, I'm, I'm a, I think it's Akford Atkinson. Um, I, I saw Twitter as something that I would just do with my mates when it first came out, yeah. rather than necessarily a, a, a career thing. Um, so, um, 
and ended up with a silly name. <laughs> so, uh, last but not least, you mentioned about the people you follow. Who are your um, biggest influences uh, in SNC, sports science? Don't have to be anything. Don't have to be even that in business or whoever. Who are your biggest influences at, at the minute? At the minute, apart from Chris Toomes. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> he wishes. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, over, over the course of, of, of my career, a lot of people have, have influenced me. Going, you know, going all the way back, uh, you know, Dave Redding and Calvin Morris with the RFU, and and and, and John Duggan, who I worked with at Leicester Tigers, through. Um, through to my current boss, Raf Brandon, who's a very, very clever and uh, intelligent man who's head of science medicine in the ECB. Uh, all the guys uh, that I've, you know, I've worked with in between. Um, I don't know, you're done me there, Rob. That's a, that's a good list, mate. That's a good list. Don't worry about that. Don't have to be any more than that. Um, no, that's good, mate. Well, um, like I say, I, that that was that was lost, but not least. So um, I, I'll let you go. But thank you very much for for giving up forty minutes on a on a busy Sunday uh, Sunday evening. So um, yeah, well, My thanks pleasure, again. Mate. You know, yeah. after after you've had eighty odd people on there, I'm not sure if there's anything left to be said. But whether there's from <laughs> of sense that it's in there, uh, I don't know. I hope there is. No, absolutely, mate. Well, um, it's been a pleasure speaking, and uh, and let's keep in touch. Okay. Thanks, Thanks, Rob. Thanks, mate. See you later. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to episode 85 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So just before I let you go, I just want to say a massive thanks to Pete for giving up his time on a Sunday evening to speak to me uh, and give a real great insight into the the last 19 or 20 years of his his professional experience. So so thank you very much, Pete, for that. I just want to say also a massive thank you to you, the listeners, for continued support and also Coach Me Plus and Valve Performance for sponsoring the episode today. So I'd really encourage you to get over to coachmeplus.com and subscribe to their Applied Sports Science Digest, which comes once a week and provides some great information uh, into your inbox. So thanks again for listening to episode 85, and I will speak to you soon.